You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. I was recently talking to a friend who is the mom of adult kids. She was deeply distressed by an interaction she'd had with one of them. Her daughter lives in another town and had not spent much time with her brother in the past decade, but that didn't stop her from going on a brutal tirade about what a horrible person he was. With impassioned words, she shredded his character, not only describing him as selfish and mercenary, but also as manipulative and deceptive. She insisted that if the mother didn't see it that way, it was simply further evidence that he had perfected the art of being a wolf in sheep's clothing. My friend was overwhelmed and almost disoriented by the torrent of words. To hear a daughter who she loved deeply say such terrible things about a son who she loved equally was really difficult and left her remarkably saddened. My conversation with her came to mind as I was continuing to ponder Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about love of enemies. It occurred to me that when I rant to God in prayer about some person who is making my life miserable, I may leave God in a very similar frame of mind as my friend, profoundly saddened to have one deeply loved child say such nasty things about another deeply loved child. Let's take a look at the text again. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're picking up where we left off last week focusing on the last few verses from Jesus' radical countercultural call to nonviolence and enemy love. Jesus begins with their starting point, their belief that they are to love their neighbor, but it is fine to hate their enemy. Jesus says to them, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's an interesting form of words that Jesus uses here. You've heard that it was said. A few pages earlier, Matthew gives an account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. In that episode, when the Satan tries to lure Jesus off track, Jesus cites the Torah, but he says, It is written, and quotes directly from that text. But here he doesn't say, It is written, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, you have heard that it was said. And as you may now be anticipating, the Torah doesn't actually say that. Well, it does say love your neighbor. That's Leviticus 19, 18. 
but an instruction to hate enemy cannot be found in the Hebrew scripture. What's going on? Some commentators think that the hate your enemy is a distillation of the instructions in Deuteronomy 23 on how they are to treat some specific enemies. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Maybe that could be construed as hating them. Another possibility is that this was a contemporary teaching of Jewish rabbis. Their style of teaching was called Midrash, a way of interpreting the text that not only honored its direct meaning, but also looked for meaning behind or beyond it. One description of Midrash is that it reimagines the dominant narratives of the text while crafting new ones to stand alongside but not replace former readings. When the writer of Leviticus records the command to love our neighbor, the context emphasizes close neighbor or family member. It's easy to see how that could be read as saying, our obligation to love is limited to our small inner circle, and further, that it's okay to not love or even to hate outsiders. Those of us from certain church traditions may get a bit twitchy at the thought of someone appearing to add to the text in that way. However, it actually was and remains a common way for observant Jews to engage with Scripture, including the Apostle Paul, if you look closely. Whatever the origin of the teaching to love neighbor and hate enemy, perhaps what is most significant about it is how it aligns with our own inherent tendency to close ranks around an inner circle of us while distancing distrusting or even despising them, those outside our circle. Us and them. Us versus them. Indeed, having agreement about a common enemy outside the group can further promote cohesion within the group. Most of us probably would have been quite fine with what Jesus' audience that day had heard that it was said. After all, most days, loving neighbor is hard enough. We may be pretty pleased with ourselves when we can manage to be loving toward our occasionally grumpy Uncle Gordon and the nice guy next door who likes to use power tools at 7 a.m. But Jesus seems to think that's not enough. He says, if all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. Jesus amplifies this idea in another teaching, when he says, If you're giving a dinner party, don't just invite your relatives and rich neighbors, because they'll reciprocate and you'll be paid back. Indeed, from a strictly utilitarian viewpoint, the kind of hospitality or generosity that is only offered within the group can be seen as self-serving rather than loving. We did something nice for them, and now they owe us, and we'll be able to call in the favor when we need something from them. It may be better than retreating into hostility or isolation, but it really is only the most basic form of community. 
Jesus says we're not to be satisfied with that. He says the goal is to be perfect as God is perfect. The word perfect here in the Greek is teleos. It doesn't describe a point in time like getting perfect on your grade 3 spelling test. It's a future-looking word that means brought to its com- brought to its end, completed. Jesus says that if all we're doing is loving our nice neighbors, people who will reciprocate, we've got a long way to go before we get to the teleos of loving the way God does. There can be a real danger with the kind of love that is content in its little community, a circle that keeps us safe from the people we distrust or dislike, the ones who are on the outside of the fence we've made around ourselves. The danger is that we can slip into an assumption that God feels the same way, has the same devoted love for those of us on the inside, and contempt for those on the outside. We like the notion that God is on our side. There are good guys and bad guys, winners and losers, and we know which camp we and our God are in. It's a theme that recurs in a number of the Psalms. Here's an example from Psalm 20. Some boast of chariots and some of horses, but we will boast of the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we shall stand, rise and stand upright. But what if God isn't on our side? What if God isn't on any side? What if God loves each and every one of us the same? Jesus encourages us to use God's love as the template, the model for enemy love. Describing our Heavenly Father, Jesus says he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And what if, like the mom I told you about at the beginning, God is heartbroken when we hate our brother and expect God to side with us against him? I know that I often quote Martin Luther King Jr. I find his witness extremely challenging. I'm a pretty competitive person, and the notion of winning really resonates for me. I just love stories in which the good guy wins, particularly if he is the underdog. But for Dr. King, the goal was not to defeat the white racist, to gain the upper hand and oppress the oppressor, to repay the sufferings of blacks by humiliating whites. No, for him, the goal was always the beloved community, to turn the enemy into a friend. He said, this is the unusual thing about nonviolence. Nobody is defeated. Everybody shares in the victory. He knew that Jesus said, love your enemy and pray for the ones who persecute you. And he took Jesus seriously. Author Anne Lamott says we can be pretty sure we've made God in our own image when it turns out that he hates the same people as we do. Jesus says we need to get that the other way around. Instead of making God in our image, hating the same people as we do and launching our vendettas for us, we are to be made or remade in God's image, perfected in a love that knows no boundaries and makes no distinctions. I think of this as an inside-out love. 
Instead of restricting our love, concern, hospitality to those inside our group, it's reaching out in love across the fences we've made to connect with those on the outside, with the other. As I mentioned earlier, we often find it challenging enough just trying to love those within our circle, the people who like us and are like us, who share the same viewpoints. However will we be able to love those who hold different political views than us, whose theology we find difficult, who have a very different understanding about where reliable medical information comes from, people who are just, well, wrong about so many things. I mean, they are our enemies for a reason. How can we love them? Okay, perhaps a starting point would be to have the humility to acknowledge that maybe not every single one of my cherished ideas tightly held opinions, or firmly entrenched theological positions is absolutely true. Of course we think they're true. If we didn't, we wouldn't believe them. Contemporary society, at least as I perceive it through the lens of social media, seems to have a fixation with what we think, and being right, and getting other people to see things our way. But I wonder if that tendency is even worse for those of us who come from more fundamentalist Christian backgrounds. We can operate from a false syllogism. Jesus is the truth. We have the spirit of Jesus living in us. Therefore, everything we think is true. Hmm. Jesus doesn't call us to correct the wrong thinking of our enemies, or even to judge their thinking to be wrong. He calls us to love them. As I was sitting with this really challenging text, I found myself wondering if one of the reasons that task seems so daunting is because I see so little common ground between my opinions and beliefs and those of my enemy. But then I thought, perhaps I'm looking for common ground in the wrong place. Maybe I shouldn't be looking for connecting points in ideas and beliefs. Maybe there's an easier way. A number of years ago, a woman named Patricia came to work in the same unit as me at Sunnybrook. This was shortly after my dad had died, and she too had lost a beloved father, so we felt a kind of kinship. I came to learn she was a devoted mom to a young daughter, and had loved hearing her stories. She lived with diabetes and liked that I did diabetes research. We had similar senses of humor. Both of us loved romantic comedies, and both were foodies. An easy camaraderie was formed, although we didn't spend too much time together outside of work because of her long commute. I really liked her. And then about six months after we met, I was horrified to discover her political bent, which was essentially the opposite of mine. How could this lovely woman hold such awful views? You may be relieved to know that I kept my mouth shut in that moment. In time, I did get over myself, and our friendship continued to flourish. But what struck me forcibly was the realization that if I had learned of her political views in our first conversation, we likely never would have become friends. I would have judged her views as wrong, and would have assumed we had nothing in common. We may have political leanings to the right or left theology that is more fundamentalist or more liberal, our epistemology, our way of knowing things, may be based on personal experience or on evidence. 
and all of those stances can become points of conflict with others. But despite those differences, we all grieve and rejoice. We all know connection and loneliness. We all see the beauty beauty and the absurdity of the world around us. We all need to laugh. And in those spaces, spaces of experience and emotion rather than ideas, we can find more than enough common ground to connect with our enemies, space to embrace our common humanity. As I close, I want to briefly remind that there is another way we need to have an inside-out love. The love that can reach across walls to embrace enemies has to come from the inside out. Jesus said we need to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And the corollary is if we don't love ourselves, it will be nearly impossible to have a healthy love for our neighbor. I pointed out earlier that closed social groups, whether cliques or even countries, often draw strength from having a common enemy. We can do that as individuals, too. Bolster a fragile ego by seeing others as wrong and ourselves as right, by seeing them as less than us. If I categorize others as enemy and despise them in hopes of propping up my weak sense of self, then maybe, just maybe, the first enemy I need to learn to love is me. Me.